come I always look like I'm constipated when I'm making that face? I don't know what's going on here. <laughs> Welcome back to another exciting episode of DSLR Film New Podcast. Devin joins me today to discuss all kinds of stuff. This week, we've got some new camera bodies as well, some other things. But first, Devin, what have you been up to, man? Oh, just way too much editing and uh, motion graphics uh, for industrial companies. And last night, I was at the Cubs game, not inside of the game, but I was watching it. From a distance, because uh, I got hired by a news company to go out and cover uh, the possible riots that would happen after the Cubs got into the World Series or whatever. I can't say I follow sports all that much. Uh, but uh, Chicago, everything was respectful. Nobody was climbing on lights uh, or cars or flipping anything. So everything was good there. What's new with you, DJ? I just finished up the massive editing project, turned in my finals, and hopefully they pass muster. In the meantime, I took a <laughs> break from editing and filmmaking in general in order to go hiking and climbing through the Ape Caves. If you are familiar with the Washington area, there are some volcanic caves uh, that's uh, probably like a level four climb uh, underground. It's about five, maybe six miles of climbing and hiking underground and then back up and hiking back to the car again. Pretty fun, really enjoyable. Did you get some beautiful bean footage? Uh, it's dark as <laughs> heck in there, man. Um, we had six flashlights. You didn't bring a couple of jokers and like some HMIs and. <laughs> uh, actually, there were there was a crew setting up in one of the easier climb caves to do some filming of people climbing in there. Uh, you oh, know, cool. sometimes you got to take a break from the filmmaking and just <laughs> enjoy your time climbing around and having a good time. A couple of people that I know from the Midwest flew up to hang out, so that was pretty nice and really enjoyable to not be in front of this screen right here for <laughs> you know 18 plus hours at a time it's uh, been driving me nuts now with that said i think i'm ready for the news, for the news. time for the news all right first up on the list here we've got some wacky stuff this is actually something that's kind of interesting kind of weird kind of strange uh leica's been doing this for a while now releasing cameras that have a fixed focal length full frame sensor Sort of a point-and-shoot with that one lens that you only ever need. Well, Sony had the RX-1. Now they've released the RX-1 Mark II. And the original was a 24-megapixel sensor with a, I believe, a 35-millimeter f2 lens. This new one is a 42.4-megapixel sensor. It has the back-illuminated CMOS sensor. 300 and 99 points of autofocus. And it's all wrapped up into a compact point-and-shoot body. Now... Devin, I know this is weird. It's very expensive. This is a $3,200 camera body, which is still $1,000 wow. cheaper than the Leica Q. But mm -hmm. you think having a single focal length full frame camera in your hand would make you more creative? You, uh, you know, it, it definitely is the definition of your your feet are the best zoom that you've got. Um, it's, it's one of those things where uh, I, I think what they're, using it for is trying to branch out and create new technology they're very big on this cmos sensor of theirs uh and how it's supposed to be number one and the world's best whatever and all this kind of stuff it's hard for me though to spend that much money on a camera with a fixed focal length it is a fast lens it's really cool that it's such a fast lens and i think that you know in some ways it gives you um limitations that uh, ends up, you know, possibly making you more creative. Because um, I've certainly had those problems where I go out with just one prime lens, uh, and then you, you know, you work around it, and that's fun. Um, 
So maybe it's like a really fun camera to shoot with. I couldn't imagine using it necessarily professionally for anything. And then that's where therein lies the rub that it's almost to, you know, professional prices in terms of spending more than three grand on a camera. Uh, you know, that's that's kind of the, the money that I reserve for professional products that I'm going to then turn around and make more money on top of. But... Um, <laughs> It's it's one of those where I go, ah, this is really, you know, uh, this is this is something that I am totally I, I would I would be excited to use, but I wouldn't buy ever. <laughs> it's just way outside my price point. Now I'm I'm looking over the images and stuff. It looks pretty nice. It's got a few interesting things. Uh, this is one of the first cameras I've ever heard of that has a variable low pass filter. Uh, it looks like they're doing some electrical trickery in order to turn the low pass filter on the sensor on and off. An interesting option if you want clearer images. Uh, this only shoots 1080p, so for videographers, may not be the perfect fit, but it is for sexy photographers. Looking. 42 megapixels, my gosh, you're making billboards out of that. Um, once again, though, I'm still going to have a gripe that it's just a tiltable LCD screen, because uh, that always annoys me to no end. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but I, I, I'm guessing they're all doing it because that saves the compact size or something like that, or some BS. About, but for me, I go, it's, it's really kind of unreasonable, because from my experience, it doesn't make the screen any better in terms of like ruggedness or anything like that all it does is provide that inconvenience of uh making it difficult to work with so now i wonder if this is kind of a style option too um i've noticed you know this has sort of the similar style of a rangefinder or something like the Mm -hmm. uh, fuji cameras maybe they're aiming for very wealthy individuals who want a classy quality camera to hang around and show that they've got the money to (laughs) afford right but it's a prime like it's one focal length, yeah, so for true. me that's that's like e- even even for uh, say you know the wealthy person who's like I want something compact, I want something that shoots the best pictures in the world and price is no object. Um, you then try giving them a camera like this that doesn't have a zoom, and they'll be like, I can't believe I'm spending this much money on a camera that doesn't have a zoom. So it's 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 a weird market because they it, it almost comes off to me as they need to have a ton of money and they need to um, desire something that's kind of like retro and trendy. Also desire the best in electronics, and then at the same time, I don't know, be proficient enough with photography that being stuck on one focal length isn't a bother for them. So it's just like all those things combined. I'm kind of like, oh my gosh, it's that that feels like such a narrow market, and that's why I feel like. This may be just a way for them to, I don't know, um, get some money for R&D or something like that. Like there, there's a bigger company plan underneath this where this is like an introduction of new technology. They get to test it in the field with customers. They get to hear back from customers and see what they like and what they don't like and then take some of this technology and move it into their other lines uh, because I don't know what else exactly this camera could service for uh, both photographers and the company. So the RX-1, folks, if you want to drop $3,200, go for it. Let me know what you think about it. We'd like to find the person that is interested in this camera. Uh, Yeah. It just catches me off guard every time I see it. Uh, I do. So 
every occasionally I do travel with just like three primes and that's it. And mm-hmm. and that's fine. You know, when I do that, it does force me to like think about my shots a little bit more. But I'll bring like a 35 millimeter, a 50 and either an 85 or a 135. So I'm not bringing like useless primes with me, but right uh, that way i have to really think about it when i'm shooting something like okay i need to be over here or I, in order to frame this correctly or to get this into focus i'm gonna have to be this far away and it, it's fun to do that sort of thing with a 35 millimeter or the i believe the leica q is a 28 millimeter mm-hmm. equivalent that's pretty wide i mean there's shots you need that for but even foot zoom like you're gonna get a little bit of uh, barrel distortion around the edges yeah. and things are gonna look well, a little bit strange no matter what and with it being full frame you're kind of gonna be like uh it, it, it is it's gonna be wide and then it's not necessarily going to always be flattering for things like portraits uh shooting people's faces up close and stuff like that where you would normally switch to something like an 80 or a 135 so it's like all the images out of this camera are going to kind of look the same to me when you can't change focal lengths. So I don't know, give or take. I mean, part of it is the performance. This is probably the best performing point and shoot that there is in the world. So I guess that's the reason for the price. But all right, moving on down the line here, we've got another set of lenses announced. And these are uh, actually Voigtlander Primes that are based on the M-mount. They're going to be coming out in full-frame format for Sony E-mount bodies. Looks like we'll be seeing a 10mm f5.6, a 12mm 12 f5.6, and a 15mm f4.5. Uh, they're naming these hyper-wide, ultra-wide, and super-wide, and they're all just <laughs> really wide to, to me. But, uh, Devin, one of the things we talked about before the show started is actually... When we saw these numbers, we're like, wait a minute, what, what's this based off? M-mount? Now, where would this be good for uh, people shooting on other cameras besides the Sony uh, full-frame bodies? Well, it's it. you could put it on, uh, you know, like we've talked about in previous podcasts, you can put it on uh, Blackmagic Pocket Cinema cameras because they can always use a wider lens with that 3X crop. Um, you know, that super 16 millimeter size, as well as, you know, adapting to anything else that's a super 16 size, which I think the Bolex is one of those two. I don't know if anyone even uses that, but that camera, (laughs) everyone remembers it, but I can't recall anyone ever using it. Um, but still it's, it's one of those where it it still seems a little slow because we're talking 5.6, uh, but you know, it's wide. So you're always combating that. I'm kind of surprised at the size though, for this E mount is that, these are really small lenses, uh, which I enjoy, especially for something like a, a Sony mirrorless cameras. You know, I can always appreciate a smaller lens. Man, now you got me looking into the digital bullocks D16 to see what the <laughs> heck is going on with it. Uh, yeah, it's still a camera. 4,000 and some change will get you a newer version, and it looks like 3,000 and some change will get you the older version. Uh, yeah, mm-hmm. I, I don't know. That, that was a little too hipster for me. Uh, yeah, these lenses look interesting, and... Uh, I mean, 600 bucks a pop, that's not bad. Uh, definitely it's adaptable. Um, it is very, very wide for a uh, well, Sony do you, user. Do you need that many at that wide? I feel like a 12. And a 10. You're pretty well serviced. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's the weird part about these lenses is having a 10, a 12, and a 15. I mean, that's not a huge jump. Like 15 to 10, okay, that's fairly substantial, but right. you don't really need to increment it in between those. You know, oh, great. Well, uh, well, this is the shot that I definitely need a 12 instead of a 10 for. Like now I'm saying like step back, uh, you know, a few feet well, and, and, and good. Yeah, the difference between 10 and 12 is probably just a couple of feet. I mean, I, I know it's a little bit of an exponential curve, but those those two are pretty close together. I guess it's 
it'd be more of a curve if you've got um if if you were to adapt the M version of this down to something like um um micro four thirds or um uh, you know, the Blackmagic Pocket Cinema camera, because then on that one, it turns into a 30 millimeter instead of a 36 millimeter. So that, that's kind of a difference there. But like you see, it's really negated. So it's weird that they come out with those. I'm liking the pricing, though, um, because I'm tired of Voigtlander's thousand dollar lenses uh, but and the size, too. So I'm kind of interested in these, but there are kind of faster options, I think. Uh, unless you're um, unless you're dedicated to E mount, then I guess E mount is what you what you'd buy because that's more convenient. Voigtlander prices have actually come down quite a bit on some of their lenses. The uh, 25 millimeter f 95 for example, is I think it's six ninety five or six ninety for from, the base price from like what twelve hundred or fourteen hundred. Yeah, bucks it was originally? about twelve hundred, I'd say, when it came out. Everyone was talking about it's it probably around twelve hundred, but it's been sitting at six fifty for probably a year and a half now, two years. I don't think they're going to drop it any further. Yeah, I'm waiting for the forty two point five to come down in price, or maybe it's a forty five. <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't. I, it's not something I need, but it's like one of those lenses. I got to use the uh, uh, Panasonic uh, 42.5 millimeter f1.2 the other day, and uh, I was like, man, if if I just wanted to waste $1,200 on this lens, I would jump on it right <laughs> now and buy this. Man. Okay. Well, and, and oh, go ahead. Let's move on. Yeah, yeah let's no, move let's, on. Those lenses, let's interesting. Move on. Uh, if you're going to buy them, let me know. Uh, now, this is actually, uh, okay. We got to back up and show some pictures here for the audio listeners. You should definitely check out the show notes because this is really a wacky, wacky thing. Um, (laughs) These these guys actually contacted me uh, and sent me some information on their Kickstarter, and they they basically said this is a revolutionary way to uh, adapt your GH4 with this cage. And when I saw it, first thing I thought was like, "Holy cow! This is wacky. This is huge. This is strange. Mm -hmm. Like, what is going on here, Devin?" Um, the best way I can describe it is it, it, the essential product of the true grip, I guess is what they're calling it, uh, is really just a cage, uh, a full cage, but it's very open on the right side. So you can still reach your hand in there and use the grip. I wouldn't necessarily say it's revolutionary. Um, there are cages that do a same purpose, but they're a little bit smaller. You don't grip the handle of the camera. You actually grip the cage handle. Uh, but still, this isn't really doing anything different. Uh, what is kind of different about it, per se, is that they have um, an interesting rail system for the handle. Uh, and they've got some cool adapters for your wireless um, uh, G- G2s or G3s from Sennheiser, which not everyone uses Sennheisers. I mean, a lot of people do. So uh, those two pieces I find pretty unique. That's the part that I go, oh, that's kind of cool. But really the big thing that they aren't really showing as the front uh, image of the product is the fact that they have a grip relocator for the GH4. And I dug everywhere on the internet. I couldn't find anyone who did this. But the principle is actually super simple where they just take that electronic connector on the bottom for the battery grip on a GH3 or GH4 and they just extended it uh, with some wires which is so basic that it gets me interested in doing it. Now, they want about 450 bucks. They don't necessarily strictly speak that it'll be metal. I'm hoping it'll be metal because it's like supposed to support part of the camera in a way. Uh, they currently show like a 3D printed plastic version of it. Uh, but that grip, 
Um, I like the fact that you could disconnect the handle and connect on another handle and everything else. Like all that, you know, seems like a really great idea. Uh, but 450 bucks just for that little grip accessory is totally too expensive for me. Uh, it's really not worth it. Uh, to the point where I'm looking at grips for 50 bucks and I go, I could take two of these and rip them apart and kind of make my own system. So, um, but it's, it's really, it's one of those where it's not like anything that I'd really say revolutionary, really fantastic, but it is something that I go, I can see this really being useful. And according to the creator and all the images he has, it looks like it's been totally useful for him. He appreciates having his hand right on the camera. He keeps the cage out of the way from being on the left side. What he's basically done is just built all of his accessories on top of the cage and then to the far right of the cage. So it gives him a lot of mounting options without getting in the way of the camera, uh, which is just generally shows that um, he uses this thing in the field. That's kind of a design choice that somebody who's used this a lot would make. There's some cage manufacturers who I feel like don't use their camera or that camera every day when they make a cage. They just kind of make something that fits it. Um, and then they don't really realize how much it gets in the way of functions and the flip out screen and yeah, everything but else. Man, so. how much are you going to put on your camera? I'm looking at some of these images uh, of his setup <laughs> and he's got like, he's got a DR60 or DR70D strapped to the top. He's got mm-hmm. several arms. He's got a boom mic, a wireless mic. He's got extra uh, lav packs on either side. I mean, there's, he's using all four channels of audio on this. Uh, this yep. is getting a little out of control. And, you know, really, with the flip-out screen on the GH4, unless you have a very impressive uh, field monitor, do you really even <laughs> need a giant field monitor attached to the top of your rig anymore? Well, and keep in mind, these images, too, the field monitor looks big because it is big. That's a 10-inch monitor. And that's part of the package in general, not the monitor itself. But he come, it comes with arms and mounting options to put a 10-inch monitor. Now, there, there's there's like one or two images I see where I go, that's really cool. And that's the one right there where he shows the monitor being put directly in front of the camera. And therefore, you put it on a tripod and you've kind of turned your GH4 into, uh, you know, like the Blackmagic uh, studio cameras or something like that. Where you just have a giant monitor on the back and you just point your camera at stuff. Um, a 10-inch monitor to me feels excessive, uh, especially considering all the power options and everything else you have to do for this thing. <laughs> it's one of those where it's it it does it seems look at excessive. this picture man oh that's it, <laughs> what one two three four five packs on there you're shooting on a ds you know uh well uh micro four thirds camera you, yeah. you don't even have the audio options for that your external recorder is four track recorder what are you doing you're you're like sub mixing these somehow into your camera it's uh well, in some cases you do. I mean, he's talked about doing ENG work. When I go out and I do audio work for news, um, usually I'm using a mixer that's actually got three inputs. And in this situation, they're not all wireless. Uh, usually they're wired. You want backup options and stuff like that. But for me, there's actually three uh, for a few important reasons. One of them will be, of course, the usual you split the tracks. You'll have like a lav on your reporter and you'll boom uh, whoever they're interviewing on the street or whatever else. Uh, And those will be separate tracks. But then at the same time, if somebody is recording something and it's live or something like that, I'll have their lav plugged in uh, and centered. I'll have a handheld mic in front of them in case the lav fails. And I'll have a boom pole. And all three of those will be centered and they'll be mixed down. But I'll mix them in right away in case something fails. So having all of those options, I could understand you kind of want a place to put them necessarily on your camera. Uh, It's just it's really... 
five. It's really though? bizarre. I mean, <laughs> five five yeah, seems I, excessive. Now you're going to get into like signal issues because you know the spectrum <laughs> available is not wide enough in any given area to handle five oh. of these densely packed on a single camera. No, I mean one one of those two is is it could be um you know you could be using two of those packs to send stereo audio back to your sound guy so he can be wireless but still listen to what's getting recorded and whatnot. I don't know. There's there's lots of stuff like that, but uh, it does. It seems like a lot of gear really excessive. I was kind of interested in the hand grip uh, because, as you know, I play around with cages and with shoulder mount options. Uh, uh, having a relocated hand grip like that kind of makes a lot of sense to me in the same way that you'd relocate the hand grip on a C300 or your Sony F, uh, F5, FS7 or whatever. Um and it seems like such a simple thing that I never thought of. That's the part that kind of seems revolutionary to me, but not enough that I'm going to spend 450 for it. I think I'll just make my own because I know how to solder. Now everyone knows how to do that. Some people like, you know, an option where they could remove and reattach and everything else. But I feel like a couple of rosette options and resoldering, and you could probably make your own uh, if you're a bit of a handy person. So to me, I, I almost wish I could just like buy the like electronic wiring. So I could just come up with my own solution, but still, I can make my own. So it, it's one of those that it, it's bizarre, uh, the handle, the grip, everything else, it does feel excessive, but at the same time, I feel like there might be certain situations where this is kind of the only way to get everything on your camera that you could ever possibly want. Normally, what you see here, all this crap, is on a shoulder rig. So keep that in mind. Yeah. I don't know how heavy this thing is going handheld, but it's trying to get all the gear you would normally put on a shoulder rig and put it on the camera. Like the only thing that's missing here is a universal power, like a Anton Bauer V mount. So uh, it, it's one of those where I'm like, oh my gosh, this is big and excessive, but I could kind of see it coming in handy in one or two situations where you need everything right in front of you on there, but it's definitely nothing DJ would ever use. That's why he snickers at it. It's something that I'm interested in, but not for that price. So The battery unit's actually pretty interesting. I did see, um, and I'm trying to find a picture, but it's just escaping me. Uh, there was a rig for a while for the 5D Mark II that actually literally had just the stud of the battery grip for your camera on the rig itself, and you slid the 5D Mark II onto that, and that powered the 5D Mark II from a barrel plug so you could run it to external batteries and so on. And you could also gang up like four or five LPE6 batteries in order to accomplish that. Mm -hmm. uh, if you could do something like that with this, that's pretty slick, but at the same time, like you said, there's a lot of really affordable options for something like that. You could definitely do uh, you know, a remote control via the uh, uh, TRRS plug on the camera and then also mm -hmm. run a dummy battery pack out to a, an extension power or something like that. So interesting idea. Like, There's some, some good stuff to take away from this. It doesn't look like it's fully baked yet. Looking at the Kickstarter, a lot of 3D printed bits and pieces still uh, yeah. being used as demo accessories. Uh, interesting. If you guys are really into this and want to check it out, looks like four ninety or four forty nine and three ninety nine and four ninety nine are the Kickstarter prices. Uh, how many yeah. have they sold on this? Let's see. And that, that being said, if you get past the front images that show the entire world mounted on top of this thing, images of him in the field using it, which I imagine were on actual productions, you basically just see like two wireless packs and a microphone and a shotgun. Uh, because as we've discussed before, the screen on the GH4 is fantastic, um, though sometimes I wish, uh, I saw one time, there's like a tiny sunshade you can buy for those little screens, 
that I keep forgetting that I could probably use one of these days. But um, if, if you're into the handheld grips, I feel like this is just another cage, uh, minus the fact that it does let you grip the camera. It's probably more comfortable and a bit more balanced. Uh, but I really like all the little accessories he put on there. I don't like his system for a cold shoe mounting. I feel like it takes up too much space. I feel like wooden camera and everyone else kind of has that down and that it's a much easier way of doing it. But still, uh, the way that he can grab the uh, your top handle grip and everything else and the thing for the shotgun mic to put it off camera, all that kind of stuff I feel like works well. But man, that thing with everything on it's got to weigh like 25 pounds. It's yeah. got to just like way down your arms. I don't know how you could hold that for more than just grabbing shots here or there. Um, but still, uh, if, if you wanted everything from your shoulder rig to fit in front of you on your hands, you could do that. Now, moving on down the line to something that's kind of interesting, a new approach to gear rental. Uh, ShareGrid is a company that's bringing the ability for individual users to share and rent out their gear to other people. If you have an accessory or something that you don't use all the time that's kind of packed away in a bag, maybe your gear could bring you in money. Now, Devin, you put this in the show notes. I did. I, I guess they're moving to New York. Is that correct? Yeah. Well, they're adding New York. Uh, they've, they've opened up in New York now. Uh, they've been in LA for a good while now. I want to say a year. Don't quote me on that. Uh, and I've just heard nothing but good things about it. I've checked it out. Um, you know, myself looking at how many people are on there and shopping and everything else. And it all looks like good experience. There's all solid gear on there. And it all seems to be really great for the smaller end independent stuff. I feel like still, if you work for a production company or something like that, and you want, you know, your selection and everything else, and you have a corporate budget, You'd go to an actual rental studio, but those few people uh, who are looking for cheaper alternatives for a weekend just to kind of like shoot their little short film or something like that, and they're like, man, I really need, you know, a boom pull and an NTG2, but I can't afford one, and the rental prices for it are like a bit high or something like that. Uh, there's a wide range of products, uh, and some of it too is just like speed boosters and stuff like that that you can kind of play with at prices much cheaper than if you went to other rental shops. So... It, it's one of those two, though, that I feel like the real power behind it is kind of building a community uh, because it's it's people who own gear slash filmmakers who are sharing with other you know filmmakers and content producers and things like that. And I think kind of in an interesting way, it's almost building a community, even though it doesn't market that and set out to do that, because from the few times that I've asked around to borrow gear from other people in my area, uh, usually end up building relationships and getting to know people and maybe like, you know, this guy's really good at sound. And so you ask him on his ne on your next gig to cover your sound and stuff like that. So uh, that's, I think, the really great part about it is it's kind of bringing in people together. Uh, you know, some people may claim that this is, you know, troubled news for rental houses and stuff like that. And I don't agree with it because, you know, that's sometimes it's a mixed bag. Like, sometimes you might end up with a camera that, you know, didn't get reset. It's got messed up settings. And, you know, if you don't know what you're doing, you may end up, like, kind of getting crappy footage or, like, it's colored wrong or something like that. Like, so it's, it's one of those that you don't exactly know the quality of what you're going to get. But I think it's great for grabbing a few lenses here or something like that or even just trying stuff out and meeting people. I really think that that's the best part of this in general. Uh, for a lot of my productions, though, um, if they were in Chicago, which they're not yet, uh, I usually do something like borrow lenses or go to a local rental house if I need it that day um, because usually it's on somebody else's bill. But for a lot of my own projects, I could definitely see myself using something like this. 
Yeah, you know, uh, being able to meet other filmmakers is actually a really good thing. Uh, as far as gear rental, though, and, and ending uh, rental houses, uh, already there are a lot of markets that aren't served by rental houses. Um, there's a lot of large cities that don't have any sort of option for rental equipment other than mail order. Uh, in a lot of the places I've mm-hmm. shot in the Midwest, you know, if you need to rent gear, you go to, like, lensrentals.com and you you know, order your stuff in advance of your shoot, have it shipped to you and then ship it back because there isn't right. a rental house. Uh, you know, there's a few lighting places in the Midwest. I, I drove for four hours one time to pick up some stuff in Omaha, which is, uh, I think they, they're called the electric grip and they were able to supply me with the lighting kit I needed. But the thing is, is that's a pretty long drive and they're the only place for probably 10 or 15 hours driving distance anywhere in that area. So if you're in between there uh, and getting to know your local folks and maybe borrowing equipment from them, a lot of us filmmakers in these different towns and areas kind of think we're an island. You know, we're the only ones doing <laughs> it or, you know, we're the only people making uh, videos or doing whatever we're doing. And it's because we get focused on our own thing and don't get involved with other people's stuff. So Anytime you can do that, that's really good. As far as crashing rental markets, you know, <laughs> I mean, no one's going to rent out their their fifteen thousand dollar camera or their thirty two thousand dollar Airy Mini or anything like that. You know, you're still going to have to go to a rental house for big gear, and that's where those guys make a lot of their profit anyway. Uh, mm-hmm. Little things like lenses, um, microphones, things like that, uh, lighting kit that's not being used. Those are all things that maybe if there was a share pool or something like that. Here in Portland, in fact, and I need to get involved in this. I haven't done it yet. Uh, there's a group of people that just all have their own equipment, and they get together and meet up, and they vote on a project to shoot every month. And it's kind of an interesting, like, democratized way. Like, you lend your gear into the pool, mm-hmm. and then one person out of five gets their project shot that that month and the next person and so on and so forth uh, a really interesting approach to uh gear and sending gear around uh, if this was in my area i'd run out my stuff no problem man i mean look at the shelf behind <laughs> me uh, i use a lot of gear all the time i have a lot of gear but some of this stuff like it falls out of uh favor with me in shooting in general and it just kind of sits in a bag until i need it again uh, i've got probably five or six field monitors back there that you know, I rarely use anymore. I still use my two DP6s. I love those guys. But, like, um, some of the, the Must HD field monitor, it's pretty good, but it's not, you know, very rugged, and I don't take it out very much. I've got, um, man, yeah, the gear list goes on as DJ continues to abandon Kit in his house. <laughs> um, really interesting concept. Really like it. Definitely something to check out if you live in either L.A. or New York. So hopefully that spreads into more markets. Now, moving on to other things that are spreading spreading more speed booster copies uh, this one is the Kepin speed booster uh, you guys may be familiar with that name I talked about them a while ago they had that really fast autofocus system for Canon to GH4 bodies this doesn't look like it has any electronics in it Devin uh, basically just Not- a speed booster lens and manual focus is that correct uh, that's well that's all that I can figure because their official page when translated, I don't speak Chinese, so maybe there's something lost in translation there. Uh, I don't see anything that says anything about uh, electrical, as well as, you know, there's one or two I see maybe popping up on eBay, and nothing in there am I really seeing anything about electrical. Um, so, you know, I can't confirm nor deny that because they shoot it at an angle where I really don't see a whole lot of electrical going on. <laughs> Uh, but 
uh, for some people, it definitely looks like, uh, you know, a cheaper option for a 0.7 speed booster, which if you compare it to Metabones right now, their ultra speed booster is running for about 650. Yeah, 650 is the Metabones ultra 0.71 speed booster. So, uh, you know, and this comes in at a price that seems pretty good as, as well as I'm imagining, I'm hoping, I haven't seen any images yet, that it'll also be really decent optics on top of this because anyone who's bought like a $150 speed booster knows uh, that's you get what you pay for in that department versus something like a Metabone. So uh, it, it's, I'm mostly interested, like I've talked before on the show is kind of like, uh, I'm not interested in the electronics because I don't have a lot of electronic Canon lenses. Most of what I've got going on is usually Nikon manual lenses uh, because that's how I shoot a manual all day, every day. DJ Man. over there has the kind of, uh, Lazy uh, man's attitude. A lazy attitude that he likes his electrical lenses. He likes his autofocus. Uh, generally speaking, too, those are all things that I mostly can't afford. That's why I get roking on. Uh, I actually <laughs> I got lenses. I, I, I didn't get really mean, but I I had to scold a guy at a shoot uh, a couple weeks ago because he kept getting my cameras and putting all the lenses into manual focus. And I would go oh. back, you know, because I cheat most of the time when I'm in a hurry. Mm-hmm. I half pressed to autofocus my subject, and then I start filming. Well, I shot like three shots, and I wasn't paying close attention to stuff. I just, you know, half pressed and then started filming, and all the shots were completely out of focus. And I couldn't figure out what's going on, and none of my lenses are focusing. And I'm like, what the hell? And I watch this guy, and every time he walks up to my camera, he flips it into uh, manual focus. I'm like, what are you doing? <laughs> He's like, well, <laughs> only you only should ever focus in manual focus. I'm like, well, okay. <laughs> yes, if you're a purist, that's fine. You could be a purist. These Canon lenses, you know, the 51-2, for example, the focus mm-hmm. ring isn't very good. Like, focusing with that is is rough in general. It's not like you're going to put a focus, a follow focus on there and, and get really yeah. accurate, repeatable results. So what are you doing? And he's like, well, you need to do this correctly. I'm like, this is my gear. You leave it in AF or you get the heck off of the shoot because I'm done with you. I don't want to have to deal with this anymore. <laughs> and I didn't, like, I didn't yell at him too hard. I took him aside. So it wasn't like embarrassing, but man, like you start to realize that everybody really has very specific ways of filming and my way i've gotten so ingrained in it that i'm almost like angry to the point of of scolding people when they touch my gear and put it into manual focus like what are you doing don't do that and i I know it's lazy i know that uh, (laughs) i'm not hiring a uh, focus puller to run this stuff and it's it's probably taking away jobs from the market and everything else, but really, come on. I mean, and we're shooting on DSLRs. <laughs> that's how it goes. Don't worry about it. <sighs> well, yeah, and like you mentioned, these are photography lenses, so they're definitely, uh, you know, not necessarily built for manual focus. I know that sounds weird, but when you can't repeat focus on a focus ring to me, I go, okay, this isn't really built to primarily be used for manual focus. Um, so, and and all the cannons. I mean, I've got uh, a Canon 50 1.4 that I use and that guy I don't get really repeatable focus with cuz it's just built with slop in it. It's built to be forgiving and everything else cuz it's really built to be an automatic lens for photography cuz automatic focus in photography is the only way most people are doing photography except for the special situations where you go, "Okay, I'll go to manual cuz I need to do something that is, you know, messing up my camera or something like that." So, that's, I mean, that's that's why all these lenses are like that, except for, you know, your Voigtlanders and your other, like, I, I don't know how to describe them other than dumb lenses. Lenses without electronics, 
they're all manual because, and that's usually they have repeatable focus, except for a few times where like some of the cheaper SLR magics and stuff like that have a sloppy focus ring, and that's really obnoxious when it's manual and it's sloppy. But well, and that's the thing. If I want manual focus, I'm gonna go into my kit and get my manual focus lenses. I have plenty of them; they're available. I have a follow focus system with the gears and everything to attach to rails and, and to do that correctly. But when I'm just setting up a DSLR and some audio inputs. It's I find that part frustrating. As for yep. the electronics going into the Metabones adapters, uh, I have yet to update the firmware in my Metabones adapter to test out the autofocus. Uh, the version that I'm running right now does not allow for autofocus at all with a Canon lens on the GH4 body. So uh, that's something I've been meaning to do. I just haven't had time to follow up on it. Uh, you're absolutely right, though, on the optics for these speed boosters. There are 20 or 30 different generic models available on eBay sold by mm-hmm. Adorama coming from Hong Kong and so on. Mm-hmm. And they're as yeah. low as $90 a piece. But the optics are fairly subpar in those guys. If you do want to cut some corners and save some money and still get a little bit of ap- active electronics in there, uh, the older generations of Metabones adapters, as soon as a new one comes out, the price falls off. So look for version 4 or version 3, and you can usually pick those up for like 250 bucks as opposed to uh, $500 or $600 for the newer versions. And I believe the firmware goes back all the way to version 3 for that AF system. So uh, that is pretty nice. Um, there is some, I think, issues with... Correct me if I'm wrong, Devin, but wasn't it something to do with the material they used on the outside of the adapter that created some sort of reflection inside of the speed boosters? Uh, yeah, I, 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 I think it had more to do with material they were using on the inside, if I recall right. Uh, the only reason why I say that, because I notice now all the Metabones, if you go to their website, uh, seem to basically coat their insides with felt instead yeah. of just like ABS plastic or whatever they got going on. And I've heard people complain about it. I don't know, maybe it was like... Uh, Dave Dugdale or somebody else. I remember somebody complaining saying that they put away their Metabones and they weren't using them anymore uh, because they were getting so many problems with some kind of internal uh, light flare reflection kind of a thing going on. So, uh, But part of me l- l- thinks that seeing their website and seeing that it's all just covered in felt makes me go, uh, I could probably fix that myself then. It's not like I have to take apart the lens. It's one lens element and both sides are open when you, you know, <laughs> so I'm just like, ah, I could maybe fix that, you know, a little DIY going on. But, um, but yeah, there's the cheaper options usually too. there, you know, they don't have coatings on them and stuff like that. They kind of help with lens flaring and stuff. All the flares always end up weird in these speed boosters. It kind of changes some of the characteristics of the lens. Some people never notice it because they don't shoot that way. Other people, that's all they ever see. So, uh, they hate them, but there's definitely options out there. That's why I'm interested in this is because I'm hoping this has optics that are almost as good as Metabones for, you know, about half the price. That would be excellent to me um, because I don't need the best out there. But I'm still waiting to see test photos and whatnot. Now, speaking of things going sideways, let's talk about Adobe's apology here. Um, for those of you who use Lightroom to process your photos, I know this is more of a photo story than it is a video story. But Lightroom released a new version 6.1 or 6.12, I believe, and there were a bunch of mistakes in it, and they basically took away like three quarters of the options for inputting or importing your footage. Now, for those of you who use this for both video and for photography, Lightroom has a lot of really good metadata information that you can add to clips as they come in. And if you set it up correctly, you can import entire shoots of video 
in a format that basically tags them, tells you what what they are, where they came from, uh, puts all kinds of other information on there and shot information so that you can recall them very easily. Uh, I know several people that use this feature. It's really handy. But Lightroom, the latest release Adobe took a lot of those features away and just made it this sort of like very simplified point and click to import. It was also crashing immensely. I had to process a bunch of photos this weekend and it was just not working for me <laughs> at all. It was a nightmare for you? Yeah, you every mean, 20 or 30 photos. You're that 1%. Yeah. You're that 1% that used those features. <laughs> yeah, and then Adobe, the, they've made things worse by coming out and saying, well, we have statistical tracking and obviously no one uses these features, so that's why we took them away. And people were outraged because the people that do use them use them hardcore and they're very yeah. important to their setup. So basically, if you're a Lightroom user, uh, go out and get the new update. And uh, I don't know, Devin, do you use Lightroom at all? Was this an issue for you? Uh, yeah. Well, I, I rarely get called out on a photo shoot because I'm not a DP and I'm not very good. But the few times that I do, uh, yeah, I use Lightroom to go through photos really quick, all the keyboard shortcuts to, you know, mark is good, mark is bad and everything else. I love all that about Lightroom. I don't use it to a crazy amount, you know, I'll do minor corrections. I love that I can just preview my RAWs really fast. I love how fast the whole thing works. But it's very un-Adobe-like because think about it. Photoshop has had every option that, like, has ever been born in Photoshop. Like, it's got, like, a bazillion different blurs and everything else because everyone has a certain workflow and they want it done a certain way. And it to me, Photoshop is probably the most un-Adobe-like product there is because all the other products like Audition, Premiere, you know, Speed, Grade, After Effects, they all have a very similar flow in how they're designed and their, you know, their layouts and everything else. And they're usually very minimal on pop-up boxes and everything else. And then Photoshop feels like completely 1998 to me because everything is in a pop-up box uh, when you want to apply things and everything else. And it, it's, it, it seems like um, that's just because they don't want to upset anybody and they kind of want to leave things the way that they are. So it's one of those, yeah, I know they got a new start page yeah, and everything I'm a, else. Yeah, presenting the page right here. This is this <laughs> this is the stupidity that they've added to this. Like, I, why do I need, you know, four very simple, like, click-through menus? Why can't I just have my regular import with the regular settings across the top? I don't or want... Or you can make selections and exactly. options on import and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. I mean, I even use those, too. I never use their, like, wizard to import stuff, but I, I guess, according to their statistics, everyone else does, so I must be in that one percent as well for using import <laughs> options in general i mean which is one of the reasons why um i really wish adobe would make uh, uh an import system for video that's better than uh prelude uh because prelude is it, it's nice for assembly and it's nice for a producer to do a simple splice and edit together but i still catch myself using um I used to use Bulletproof, uh, but they quit supporting that uh, offload uh, by Red Giant uh, just, you know, to make copies and do renaming and things like that because, uh, you know, nobody really has done good options for video. And especially to some of the features like Premiere automatically searching for your files and finding them if something gets moved or mislinked or something like that, that doesn't work well if every single one of your video files starts with, you know, uh, DMW dash whatever, you know, because then then you'll have five copies of the same file name if you're working on several projects at the same time and you shoot enough with your camera that it's it, the numbers start going in loops. So. Well, and yeah, I made a mistake, actually, because for a long time when I was shooting short films and then uh, working on other projects, I would just reset my camera to zero 
every time. So the counter would be reset to zero before I started shooting. Mm-hmm. And I would reset my recorder the same way. So my field recorder would be reset to zero. And that way, whenever you started recording, the count would go up continuously and they would both be one, two, three, four, and so on. <laughs> well, that's great until you are telling Premiere to like reassociate files and you have a bunch of clips that all have, you know, RCW2001 and they're all named the same and they're, you know, close enough lengths that it's starting to mess up your timeline. And then you have to start really digging in deep and then that's where metadata information comes in. Now, Red Giant had a really good program for doing this. Is that is that no longer supported at all? Like I, I thought uh, you, that's what Universe was going to do. No, Universe was just for plugins and effects. Um, uh, yeah, because I never even I never even asked you if you use Red Giant or not. Um, uh, they they have a product which, if you bought it, you can still use, but they're no longer updating it. Called Bulletproof, which would do proxy encodings on the fly, backup encodings, a ton of organization and everything else. Since they said they couldn't keep up with format changes and codec changes and everything else, they scrapped all that and said, uh, we're not going to support it anymore, and you can use our program Offload. I think they gave a free license of Offload, which is a cheaper piece of software, but a free license for that for everyone who bought Bulletproof. And Offload is basically just, it copies footage to two locations. Uh, It doesn't do any kind of renders or encoding or anything else like that. Uh, which is kind of upsetting because I really felt like Bulletproof was a great DIT, uh, DIT tool. Uh, but you, I, I understand because so many formats are changing with 4K and everything else. Uh, why they, you know, maybe stop supporting it. Universe, on the other hand, is a bunch of free effects for Premiere, a few for After Effects. And then if you buy Universe, they'll give you professional effects. And that's a yearly cost. And they're constantly adding to it. And the user community, I mean, back when I first got it, um, let me see, I could, uh, I want to say when I first got it, because I actually paid for it, uh, which probably surprises a lot of people. Uh, <laughs> no, Red Giant I, has I, some really good stuff, man. I, I mean, I pay for Trap Code, and yeah, I trap pay code's for, fantastic. Uh, uh, for Pluralize. And, you know, I... Oh, yeah. I've got three Pluralize, copies. Pluralize, definitely. Yeah, it's and it's so nice, because Pluralize... Like especially if you have like a folder that's completely in in shatters, tambles, cra- well, it's messed up. You just throw everything in there. You say, "All right, pluralize. Tell me what's what," and it like puts stuff together. And a couple of shoots, like uh, we ran out of stuff. We didn't have enough time to do things correctly. So one camera had a great uh, audio setup, and the other camera was just the onboard mics. And we needed to like sync all those footage, or all that footage together, and pluralize generated. Uh, Premiere files, everything else. That was just wonderful to work with. Now, Devin's sharing the screen here. What are you sharing, man? So this is this is Red Giant Universe uh, through Red Giant Link. And so what you see here is this is all the free tools. So if you just go download Red Giant Universe for free, uh, you'll get all of these ramp generators. Uh, there's uh, you know a few uh, tools that you can use, fade in, fade outs, you know, shutter. They've got some Tunic stylistic cartoon. things, transitions and whatnot. And then if you buy premium, which I want to say is nine bucks a month or something like that, uh, they've got all these tools down here, film transition, uh, you know, their Tunit plugins, like VHS style plugins. And all these plugins have a bazillion options to customize it so that it doesn't look the same as everyone else's. Uh, they've got like 16 millimeter grain, on there and a bunch of other stuff. It's really fun to use. There's very few tools that I go, well, I need this. Like I would need denoise or something like that. Uh, all those are separate products that they still sell for just one fee. But when I first started buying Universe, there was maybe one third of all the things you see here. And in probably about a year, it's already tripled. So they keep adding to it. 
uh, and I think they listen to the community and what the community wants. And it's supposed to be a feedback loop where people talk, uh, talk to red giant, red giant talks back and figures out, uh, exactly what they want. So, uh, it's something that I've definitely had a lot of fun playing with, uh, even the free tools, even just to grab the free tools, uh, they've got different blurs in there. And I think that they had a vignette for a while on the pro premium side. I think that's why I first got it till premiere came out with their own vignette, but you know, fisheye distortion, just fun things that kind of, if you're making music videos or you're trying to figure out uh, a new angle for your video, something different, it's something to play with that you can apply to text and like find interesting ways to use. It really just, to me, it's a playground. That's really why I have it. It's not like uh, the other products I use, like a Denoiser 2 or Pluralize, where I'm like, oh, I use this every day. I'm doing a multi-camera shoot and, you know, I don't want to sit here and sync everything and all that kind of stuff. Pluralize is amazing. Uh, I still, there's really nothing that can beat it because of how updated it is. I bought the, I even paid for an upgrade so that it would support audio drift. Uh, cause I was getting slight audio drifting with my H4N on some shoots. So fantastic piece of software that I use pretty much on every shoot that I'm using more than one camera. Yeah, definitely worth investing in if you're in the market for that sort of thing. Now, um, I forgot where, well, anyway, Adobe messed up. Uh, Red Giant is awesome. Yeah, we, wow, we went way far from that. Yeah, I completely <laughs> forgot where we even started. Uh, there's two more things I wanted to get in before we end the show today. Uh, first and foremost, uh, for those of you shooting in Europe, the GH4-R is now shipping. Uh, if you're not familiar with this, this is basically a camera for the European market that has the limitations for the 30 the minutes of video. minute removed yeah. so now you can shoot continuously the same as the american version of the camera which is really nice they've also added vlog to this uh price is pretty competitive it looks like it's fairly similar to what the gh4 was before i think uh 80 or 100 dollars more is that correct evan uh yeah that's pretty much what i saw uh which i didn't i didn't put in the news either because we don't need to talk about it but i just saw the gh3 now has gone down to like 600 dollars yeah, and the so. the GH4 on eBay, uh, gray market for uh, American shooters, it's uh, I think it's uh, one thousand sixty five dollars right now. Yeah, darn it's like good, just pricing. above a thousand. You know, as soon too, as soon as it drops under a thousand, I'm sure a bunch of people are going to buy it up. Yeah, the, well, the GH5, you know, everybody kind of is expecting that to be at the next NAB. So uh, the GH4 may Rumored. not be long for this world, uh, depending on the upgrade. Now, they're normally a tick and talk cycle, so uh, this right. isn't really us diving too far into the rumors. But I suspect the GH5 will be um, iterative upgrades to the GH4 as opposed to uh, a major, major change, and then we won't see anything crazy till the GH6. Does that kind of line up with what we've seen in the past for Panasonic? Uh, yeah, I mean, um, yeah, f for sure. The, the uh, I mean, a lot of the rumors that I've seen, uh, besides people with wishful thinking talking about 6K and everything else, I'm like, uh, no, I'm sorry. I, I know it was revolutionary when the GH4 came out, and for under two grand, you could get a 4K camera. Uh, but the GH5 is not going to be like a 5K or 6K camera uh, just because that'd be way too expensive. Technology hasn't gotten that far advanced yet. But I imagine they may have slightly, like by a millisecond, faster autofocus systems to advertise. I'm hoping that they'll have maybe slightly higher bit rates for slow-mo. Um, you know, 96 frames per second looks really good if you don't have a lot of data, if there's not a lot of moving objects, because that bit rate is really low for that many frames. So it'd be nice to see something like that, like being able to apply your two, uh, your 200 megabit maybe to 4K 
would be really nice instead of 100 megabit uh, or your 200 megabit at least to that 96 frames per second slow-mo would be really great. So I could see them kind of mixing and adding a little bit more power and maybe slightly better low light because for sure it'll probably include a new chip. Uh, which will probably have, you know, it's built in denoiser and everything else built into it. So maybe slightly better low light performance just through software, not necessarily through a new sensor or anything like that. You're right. It'll probably be the same sensor we've seen with kind of the same format options we've seen just slightly better. Uh, but, you know, everyone's very wishful that it's going to be, you know, some kind of red dragon killer or something. It would like be that. really nice to see a backlit sensor on the GH4 so that oh, yeah. I could push it up to 3200 or 6400 ISO. Uh, 1600 ISO is it's really usable and I can't really Maybe complain. Maybe to you. But uh, I got well, problems with 1600 ISO. Part, no, no, no. I don't I mean, really have problems with 1600 ISO. The problem I have is that everyone... Uh, that has like these magical settings they say to set your GH3 or GH4 to, they always end up making it super noisy or people just shoot flat and then it's super noisy because uh, they aren't exposing to the right of the histogram, um, which like kind of negates dynamic range. When you shoot to the right of the histogram and then you stretch that out, uh, you know, that's the, you're negating part of the dynamic range because of that, because you're trying to crush the noise in the lower end and everything else. So it's one of those where I find sometimes the best option for clean, great-looking footage is just to do kind of standard without messing with the options too much. I know everyone loves to like try to figure out what the perfect settings are, but I really change those on a shoot-per-shoot -shoot basis. I don't just have a perfect list of settings where I'm like, oh, I'll set it to this, and your GH4 will magically work better. So... I just I just get upset when I hear uh, when I think about people who are like, oh, you should set it to all these kind of settings and set your Canon to these settings and you'll get the best image possible or you'll get the flattest image possible. It always ends up kind of being crappier than they promise. And I always find myself going going back to kind of standard profiles and maybe I'll notch down one in uh, the denoiser or something like that. Switch as opposed to people vivid, who are like, man, switch it to vivid and then you're <laughs> right? good to go. Because well, because everyone's like, oh, negative five on contrast, negative five on saturation, negative five on this. Oh, get the flattest image possible. I'm like, you didn't make a flat image. You just made a gray image. Yeah, <laughs> and a then difference. pretty soon, like you get to post, and the first thing you have to do is crank your contrast and everything else back up again. And it's like, right, well, yeah, and well, it's and better out of camera. Well, yeah, that's fine, but it's a lot of work, buddy. And I don't feel like copying, <laughs> you know, profile settings from every image. And yes, I could yeah. go on a speed grade if I really wanted to, but I'm not going to because that's a lot of work and I don't have time for it. <laughs> I mean, that's part of it, too, is that people forget how great these cameras look out of the camera and that, you know, every great video they've seen made with these cameras probably weren't, you know, screwing with it uh, and flat profiles and everything else. So, All right. Last thing on the list here, and uh, that's a great thing for European users, uh, is the Canon EOS M. Looks like they're still trying to make this a thing. Uh, this camera is very affordable. This is the EOS M10. I'm going to share a screenshot here so you can see it. And I'm just going to buzz through this really quick. Looks like it's going to be $600 with the kit lens. Uh, they've added a new kit lens. It's a 15 to 45 millimeter f3.5 to f6.3 ISSTM. So you do get image stabilization as well as the coveted STM motor driver for this particular camera lens of uh, the m series cameras have kind of been forgotten by canon uh, in fact you can buy <laughs> the original eos m for very very cheap i think it's like mm -hmm. 200 bucks on ebay uh, it sports the original 18 megapixel sensor that you saw in the original 7d as well as the 60d and many of the rebel series cameras uh it's a good price af you, still you kind of sucks and they you know like, what they're missing you know what they're missing? I, first Selfie off, stick. Uh, 
Kind of. Well, besides the flip out screen, uh, which again, I'll rant about the fact that it only flips up. It doesn't flip out. Uh, come on, guys. But uh, the big thing I'm going to say is that Canon, I feel like, could move these units if uh, they came out with their own speed booster that would put Canon L-Glass on a something like this. I know tons Ooh. of people would buy them up as B cameras, secondary cameras, everything else. You know the electronics are w- going to work like they're supposed to. Uh, and, the ca- and with firmware updates, you could have the camera identify L-lenses and stuff like that. They get attached to it. And now all of a sudden, people have just a mountain of Canon lenses that they can use on their EOS M. I think it's because no one's making adapters. Uh, none of the lenses are super compelling. And to be honest, uh, you know, the point and shoot part of it kind of works out okay. It's not fantastic. It's okay. And then the video part of it that we would be interested in is really mediocre. It kind of looks like a, a GH1 or a GH2, which funny fact, I was looking up prices on GH2 on eBay. They're like $600, what? which is Still? funny that you can... Yeah, yeah, it hasn't gone down in value at all. Is it all. the hack feature? Like, oh, great, we're going to... No, there's people with, like, mint condition in a box, like, untouched for $600. What? And people who... Yeah, yeah. And oh, so it's, it, it is, considering that BH Photo right now is selling a GH3 for $600. But, I, yeah, so I guess maybe people don't know the market, but if you go to the eBay right now and alike, you'll find tons of GH2s ranging from about five maybe 550 to like 700 because i'll include like extra batteries and lenses and whatnot but it's it's crazy that that thing still goes for 600 a body uh, <laughs> considering now, all the other price drops one thing i will say about the eos m is if you're just using it as a film tool it does shoot 1080p it's extremely affordable it's adaptable to pretty much any lens you can throw at it and as long as you're manual focusing your glass that's not a bad deal uh the body is probably going to be in the $400 range with the flip-up screen. You know, maybe if you're doing blog posts and you have to stand in front of the camera, that's not a bad deal. Uh, The AF system on these is always pretty lackluster, so keep that in mind. And again, this is using the previous generation of uh, 18-megapixel sensors, so your low-light performance is what you'd probably see out of a T2i, so I'm guessing Mm -hmm. 1600 ISO. Uh, The video demonstration of this is basically someone running around on the beach with her cat, uh, taking pictures and selfies <laughs> of herself using this flip-up screen. So if you want the perfect rate selfie is small. camera, you know, I mean, yeah, this is basically like a reiteration of many of Canon's earlier features shoved into a really tiny, cute little body mm-hmm. that's adaptable to a lot of lenses. And this is actually still one of the cameras I recommend for people that are just starting out and maybe have 400 bucks to invest to buy some cheap uh, lenses on eBay, you know, maybe some old Nikon lenses or some, you know, really wacky Vivitar lenses and slap them mm-hmm. on this guy for, you know, three or 400 bucks. And now you have a basic starter shooting tool. But now bodies have come down so much that, you know, you mentioned the GH3, but we now have like the G7 and the yeah. uh, GX8. The G7, I think is like 695 or 650. And There's that so... shoots 4K. It has almost all the features of a GH4 minus a few things, and it's half the price. I mean, man, it's, it's so cheap. There's a lot of compelling. Yeah, there's a lot of compelling options for uh, that $600 price range. Um, so it's it's one of those that you know, looking at the, it's like it is a good recommendation. I always say go cheap on your camera, go big on your set design, and go big on your audio because uh, those two things are what's going to make it stand out. Uh, you know, cause it's, <laughs> cause after you see, um, all of your, you know, uh, I've seen so many great films that are done 
on really poor performing cameras, uh, but they're still compelling. They still look great uh, because it comes down to things like lighting and cinematography. And so if there's anything in your entire kit to chip uh, to be cheap on, I would say it's the camera um, and instead make sure that you spend most of your money on a combination of lightings and audio, uh, as well as production set design. If you're doing a short film or something like that, getting the right props or, you know, getting the right locations and stuff like that are way more important in terms of telling your story than a camera that has 12 stops of dynamic range as opposed to 10, you know? So those are, those are always things to keep in mind, but yeah, right now it's crazy. There's so many things at $600 that anyone can pick up and start making great video with. Uh, I, I, me personally, I wouldn't even know what to choose because I mean, I'm really liking my GH three and it does have some features that, you know, the G seven doesn't have, even though the G seven does have 4k. So like, that's kind of a toss up because, uh, the GH three is a solid performer. Uh, does the, does the G seven shoot like 60, 1080 P? Or any, does it, it have any high-speed options? I believe it does have a few high-speed options. Uh, they're limiting, I think, 24 frames per second for 4K The 4K. Footage. And then I want to say that they took out uh, focus peaking and some of the histogram options. I might be incorrect in that, guys. I don't have the spec sheet in front of me, so uh, unfortunately right, but... I cannot remember all the camera stuffs in the world, so don't send <laughs> a hate, hateful email to me. But still, there's so many options that if you're getting started um, – $600, it's crazy what's available for $600. And I'm sure when that GH5 comes out, the GH4 is going to drop down to like 800 So it's still a great camera too. All right, on yeah. that note, Devin, I think it's time to get out of here. Where can people find you, man? <laughs> yeah, you can find me on Twitter at DevoCut where I, uh, you know, I'm trying to post more uh, funny films and stuff like that that I come across. All right, guys, you can find this podcast anywhere podcasts are distributed, including iTunes, SoundCloud, and so on. You can find me at DSLR Film Noob on Twitter. You can also find us on Facebook. You can like this thing. You can like all the things. You can click on the like button. Uh, no Mitch show this week, guys. Uh, Mitch will be out for Expo something Expo thing. Uh, and so Devin is filling in. Thank you for doing the extra <laughs> show this week, by the way. Uh, on that of note, course. guys. This has been another exciting episode of DSLR Film Purdue Podcast, and we're out of here. Bye-bye now. Go go home. That got really weird really fast. I don't know where I was going with that. Yeah, that did. I'm just freaking <laughs> myself out now. All right. Thanks, Devin. And... Mm-hmm.